Chapters forty five and forty six of When Shadows Die by E. D. E. N. Southworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter forty five. Winding up. When the party returned to the drawing room, they found the earl and the general waiting for them. The squire greeted his friends and then introduced the general. The visitors from the country who had known the counterfeit to their cost were now very much pleased to make the acquaintance of the genuine officer. Presently, taking Anglesia aside, Mr. Force said to him, "'I have had a long interview this morning with my invalid wife. There has been a full explanation between us, but the excitement of such a conversation has exhausted her, and nurse and doctor forbid any more talk to-day, and enjoin absolute repose. Tomorrow she will see you. In the meantime, will you be so good, if you have no objection, to go with Captain Grandier and myself to one of our military prisons?' You need not fear anything unwholesome. The place is a miracle of cleanliness. A veteran of the East Indian Army need not fear the sight of a military prison, laughed the earl. But what may be the object of our visit? Mr. Force then explained the real position of Roland Bayard and of Burns Stukely, and the deception that had been practiced by the slaver captain on his young prisoner, to persuade the latter that he was the son of the former, and to prevent him from giving the evidence that would clear himself and hang his supposed father. It is to abuse the young fellow of this false impression, and to prove to him his real parentage, that I wish you to accompany us to the prison, General, concluded Mr. Force. Of course, I will do all that with much pleasure. So my estimable relative Stukely has wound up his career by turning pirate and slaver in these war times. Well, something of the sort might have been expected of him and his extradition has been demanded by the British government, I hear. These last words fell on the ear of Captain Grandier, who immediately answered, Yes, and when they get him they'll hang him, for they don't mince matters with such scoundrels as we do. But force, he added, turning to the squire, an article in this morning's paper, while it confirms the report about Stukely, denies that the extradition of Craven Cloud, or any other than the slaver captain, has been demanded. And that is plausible, too, for what time had they to hear of Craven Cloud, who has only passed a few weeks on board of the slaver by which he was taken prisoner? And who is Craven Cloud? demanded the general. Craven Cloud is the name our poor Roland took in his dire misery to save his own name from unmerited dishonor, and to save his friends from the knowledge of his possible fate. I am glad that he is not included in this demand of your government." So am I, for his extradition would have involved painful delays in getting his rights. Mr. Force then rang the bell and ordered a carriage, if one could be procured, to be at the door in twenty minutes. Then he went up to Rosemary Hedge, took her hand, and said, Dear little faithful heart, we are all going to get Roland out of prison. It may take us all day, for there may be lots of red tape to disentangle, but we expect to bring him back with us. Rosemary smiled gratefully. "'Did I hear you say you expected to bring my Roland back with you?' inquired Miss Sibby. "'Yes, madam,' replied the squire. "'Well, now, you do it, Abel Force. You better had, squire. If you don't, I'll walk myself right up to the president. I won't go to any of your secretaries, nor commissioners, nor any other understrappers. I'll walk myself right up to the president of these United States, and I'll demand of him why a brave and honorable young man, who is the adopted nephew of a descendant of the great Duke of England, is kept in prison.' If you go to any one, says I, go to headquarters, says I. What does she mean by the Duke of England? inquired the general, in a low voice. 
"'Oh, she means a Duke of England, that is, Thomas, fourth Duke of Norfolk, "'one of whose younger sons came over to Maryland with Leonard Calvert in 1633, "'and from whom Miss Bayard's mother was really descended, "'a fact which she never forgets or allows anyone else to forget. "'A long decline, you will say. "'But, my dear General, there are people descended from your English aristocracy "'who are working on our roads or pining in our prisons.' as there are also people descending from your English peasantry, who are filling the highest places in our social and national life. The waves of rank rise and fall like those of the ocean. "'Here we go, up, 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 and here we go, down, down, downy,' murmured Wynnette, who, standing nearest the speakers, had overheard with her sharp ears the low-toned words of this conversation. The carriage was now announced, and the three gentlemen left the room to go upon their visit to Roland in the old capital prison, putting the ladies under the care of Sam Grandier. Young Sam, too gallant to leave them, yet with his ruling passion strong, under all circumstances, proposed to take them to the agricultural college, and also to the agricultural grounds and conservatories. All the ladies consented to go, except Odalite, who decided to stay home for the chance of being admitted to see her invalid mother, and of receiving a visit from her lover, should his official duties give him time to call. But Lee found no opportunity to visit his sweetheart that day, and Odalite remained alone, unsummoned even by her mother, who, jealously guarded by her nurse, was kept in a state of complete quietude. She did not go down to lunch, because she disliked to enter alone the public dining-room, crowded as it was at all times with officers, soldiers, and civilians. She remained in the ladies' parlor, ate a few crackers, read a few newspapers, went occasionally to her mother's door to inquire after the patient, and, hearing that she was resting quietly, returned to her parlor and her reading. So passed the day. It was late in the afternoon when Sam Grandier and his party returned from their sightseeing excursion. The ladies were hungry and fatigued, and anxious to get something to eat, and then go to the rooms and lie down but Sam was full of the wonders of agriculture, horticulture, and floriculture, to which he had been introduced that day. If I was to be condemned for my sins to live in the city, which heaven in mercy forbid, and was allowed to choose the place of my punishment, it would be the agricultural college. I could stand that better than any other place, he said. And this was high praise coming from such a quarter. When they had all lunched, the grandiers and hedges returned to their lodgings in E Street to rest before dinner. They always went and came under protest, declaring that to sleep in one house and eat in another seemed to them so disorderly as to border on indecency. But Wynnette always quoted Sancho Panza, reminding them that travelers must be content, especially in wartime. It was dark when at length the three gentlemen returned to the hotel, with Lieutenant Force and Roland Bayard in their company. As they entered the parlor, Odalite sprang up with a little cry of joy, given no less to the released prisoner than to her betrothed lover. "'Is it all over? Is Roland quite free now?' she inquired, after she had shaken hands with both the young men. "'Well, no, not quite over, for Roland is detained here in Washington as a witness. Perhaps he will have to go to England as a witness. Find seats, gentlemen. I will tell you all about it, Odalite,' said Mr. Force. When they were all seated, the squire continued. "'We went from here to the old capital prison to see this night.' who is going to sacrifice himself upon a hallucination. Never mind that, you will understand by and by. Our friend here was enabled to give Roland the true history of his birth and parentage, being fully acquainted with all the facts and furnished with documents to prove them. 
"'And who, then, is he, Roland?' inquired Odalite, with affectionate interest. "'Stay, my dear, not now. I cannot inform you just yet. You shall know his position presently. Now I wish to tell you how we released Roland. First we told his own story, and convinced him that he owed no duty to the impostor who had deceived him. Then we went to the commissioner of prisoners, without much success. Then to the secretary of war, without much more. Finally to the president, who, after hearing what we had to say, signed an order for Roland's release on parole. "'But why not release in full?' inquired the young lady. "'Because, my dear, there must be an investigation, and that takes time. However, he is practically free.'" CHAPTER Forty Six: REVELATIONS The ladies' parlor of the Blank Hotel in the city of Washington consisted of several rooms thrown into one by arches draped with curtains. It was the habit of the guests to collect in family or social groups in the several compartments of the saloon, where each circle could enjoy some privacy apart from the stranger inmates. On this warm evening in May, all the forces, except the mother, all the grandiers who were in Washington, the Hedges, Miss Bayard, Roland, General Anglesia, and the Earl of Enderby, were assembled in the rear alcove, at a safe distance from any other guests who might be in the parlor. For still greater privacy, the curtains of the arch had been lowered, and for coolness, the sashes of the bay window at the back had been raised. They thus enjoyed something like the seclusion of a domestic drawing-room. There was a gay group at the other extremity of the saloon, and the sound, but not the sense of their talk and laughter, sometimes reached our party in the rear alcove. But nothing that was spoken among the latter could possibly reach the ears of the former. The alcove was in pleasant shade this summer evening. Someone had asked leave of the others, and then had lowered the gas, to decrease the heat, as well as to subdue the light. The May moon, at its full, shone in through the open bay window, and softly illumined the interior, falling directly on the pale face of Abel Force, who occupied a large easy-chair in the midst of his party, who were seated around him, waiting in eager attention for his words. The squire of Mondrier began to speak in a somewhat formal manner. "'My friends,' he said, "'I have asked you all to meet me here, "'that I may explain to you some family matter "'that you have not hitherto understood, "'or rather, that you have entirely misunderstood up to this day.' "'The squire paused in some embarrassment. "'Miss Sibby took advantage of the momentary silence "'to nudge Miss Susanna Grandier and whisper, "'I note it. "'Everything as is hid, says I, is sure to come out, says I. "'But it's nothing again, able force, whatever it is, says I.' I'll bet on the old squire every time, says I. Mr. Force went on. You have all taken, or seem to take, much for granted in our lives, which was not true. Now did you not? Why, not that I know of, Force. I don't know of any mistakes we any of us ever made about you, exclaimed old Captain Grandier, answering for all his neighbors. In what respect have we done you wrong? he next inquired. In no respect have you done me wrong. You have only taken some things for granted, and made some harmless mistakes." What mistakes? These questions helped the embarrassed squire in his awkward explanations. Perhaps he drew them out for the purpose. For instance, he replied, you all took it for granted, when I married in Europe, that I had married a young lady who had never been married before. Yes, of course, replied the old skipper, while everyone else listened in silent expectation. You never imagined that I had married a young widow. "'Good heaven, no!' exclaimed the old sailor, opening his eyes to their widest extent. "'None of us ever could have dreamed of such a thing. So Mrs. Force was a widow when you married her?' "'Yes, the widow of the late Prince Luigi Saviola, of Naples.' 
"'Good gracious! And you never let on a word about it to any of us.' There was no occasion. The way did not open to make such an announcement, without apparent egotism, replied the squire, discreetly, but not very convincingly. "'I confess I do not see where the egotism would have been,' said Miss Susanna Grandier. "'There may be a difference of opinion on that head,' said Abel Force. I could not go up and down the country proclaiming aloud to all and sundry of my farmer neighbors that I had married the widow of the late Prince Luigi Saviola, nor should I even mention the fact here among my old friends this evening, but that new developments of circumstances have made it necessary to do so. Needs must when the devil drives, says I. Not that Abel Force has anything to do with the devil, says I. No, indeed. I bet on Abel Force every time, says I, muttered Miss Sibby, aside to Mrs. Hedge. "'Now, squire, speak right up. Tell us all about it. You look as if you couldn't come to the point. You have got something more to tell us besides that you married a beautiful young widow. Out with it, squire. We are all friends here,' heartily exclaimed old Gideon Grandier. Thus backed up and encouraged, the embarrassed and hesitating master of Mondrier took heart of grace, and told the story of his wife's first marriage. Not the whole story by a long deal. He suppressed much that did not concern his neighbors to be told, and would not have edified them to hear. For instance, he never hinted a word about the runaway marriage of the fascinating Italian exile with the too romantic young schoolgirl. He merely told of the marriage of Prince Luigi Saviola of Naples with the Lady Elfrida Glennon, only daughter of the Earl of Enderby, of their travels over the continent and the birth of their only son at Geneva. He breathed no syllable of the fatal jewel in which the prince had fallen, but told them that he had died suddenly while on a visit to Paris, and that soon after his death his widow had returned to the protection of her father, in whose company he, Abel Force, had first met her in Switzerland, and that he had been so charmed with her that he had won her affections, and that he had married her some months later in England. At this point of the story Abel Force paused for a few moments, and then said, "'It would be too long and tedious a tale to tell you how we both became separated from our only son.' that is, my wife's son by her first marriage, and my son by adoption and by affection, the young man whom you have known as Roland Bayard, but who, in truth, is no other than Rolando Saviola, the only son of the late Prince Luigi Saviola, and of the Lady Elfrida, his wife. Enough that lately has come over from Europe this gentleman, General Anglesia, the long-time friend of my wife's family, who was present at her marriage with the prince, who was present also at the death of the lately deceased, aged Prince Antonio Saviola, and is the appointed executor of his will. General Anglesia has come to America in search of the heir, and has found him in the person of the young man, whom, as I have said, you have known so long as Roland Bayard. As Mr. Force concluded his narrative, a silence of astonishment fell on the circle. And now, put in the earl, I hope all our friends understood the position of my nephew here. Old Captain Grandier started up and seized Roland's hand and shook it heartily. Little Rosemary slipped her slender fingers in those of the earl and whispered, "'Didn't I tell you Roland was of patrician birth? Didn't I tell you he looked like you? I am not the least surprised.' The earl caressed the little hand that was resting in his, but made no reply in words. "'Yes, for all that I knew it all along, and am not surprised, I do feel as if I was hearing it all read out of a romance by the evening fire, in Aunt Suki's old room in the farmhouse,' added Rosemary dreamily. Lee followed the example of Captain Grandier, went up and shook Roland by the hand, whispering, "'I am heartily glad of your good fortune, old fellow, heartily glad. 
not that any fortune, good or ill, could affect my friendship for you. It is not likely, smiled Roland. If you did not lose faith in me when I was in the role of the pirate captain's mate, surely no amount of adversity could turn you against me. And as for prosperity, I know, Lee, that mine gives you unselfish joy. All now in turn shook hands with Roland, and wished him well. The young man cordially responded to all this sympathetic pleasure. Mr. Force's friends were not quite satisfied. All was not cleared up to their contentment. They wished to know how it happened that Roland had been separated from his parents in his infancy. But the mystery, which has been revealed to the reader, was never made clear to them, though subsequently various reports got into circulation concerning the lost child, the most popular of which, originating no one knew how, was that Roland had been stolen by gypsies. This romance came finally to be received as the truth. It was late that night when the party separated and retired to rest. End of chapter 46